Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another excellent guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Stuart Phillips is a professor of kinesiology and a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Skeletal Muscle Health and Aging. He attended McMaster University, where he currently teaches, and got his PhD from the University of Waterloo in 1995. In his distinguished career, he has established himself as a world-renowned expert in protein synthesis, muscle building, and sarcopenia, and has published literally hundreds of peer-reviewed papers on those topics. He has won several awards for his excellent research from numerous agencies, including his own university. He has made countless appearances and presentations all over the world and has conducted many interviews, including this one here today on Boundless Body Radio. And we are so grateful for Professor Stewart Phillips and his work and everything he has added to the research about protein and muscle building. Professor Phillips, welcome to the show. Thanks uh, for having me on the show, Casey. It's a real pleasure. Absolutely. It's an honor to host you. And I wanted to start out today um, where I normally conclude my interviews by talking about um, your your book, your website, the 12-day program, the 30-day program that you have available for sale. Um, tell us about the things that you are selling. <laughs> uh, well, so, so sorry, uh, no book, uh, <laughs> no, no website really, a university website if that counts. Uh, and I'm not really selling anything. Uh, like, I think we, uh, we emailed back and forth. I said, no, nobody owns the patent on uh, exercise. So, um, and, and that's really what I like to sell, if that's the right word. But just the, the general engagement in it, not a specific program. <laughs> that's great. We love that. We're not really selling anything either. We're full of clients and um, don't really have any protein powders to sell or anything like that. So that's great. We just, we, we'd love to invite people onto the show who have really good motives and just want to help people. So when did you first become interested in the human body and especially muscle mass? Yeah, so I did my undergrad in in biochemistry, actually. Uh, but I was uh, I was a varsity athlete my entire time uh, at McMaster, as you mentioned, uh, and I was a rugby player for the most part. But any sport that involved um, rapid speeds and running into other people, so if it was football, uh, if it was rugby, ice hockey, that was that was, those were my sports. Um, and I think I was, if we had had kinesiology at McMaster at that time, the program was actually physical education. Uh, I would have taken kin. Um, but as it was, I was really interested in the science of how things worked and, you know, a cellular level. And that was where the biochemistry interest came from. But then in my master's, I, I got the opportunity to, uh, to work with real people, um, which I really enjoyed. And it's kind of just grown from there. Wow. So cool. I think I would prefer hockey over rugby because I get to wear a helmet when I play hockey, not necessarily yeah. when, you run, when you play rugby. Um, when did you become so interested in muscle in particular? Yeah. So during my, my master's degree, I ran into uh, a person who's been a real mentor and um, a good friend and colleague still to this day, uh, Mark Tarnopolsky, who was interested in protein turnover. And the time we spent together, um, and doing the projects that we did, uh, he kind of grew my interest in, in muscle. He's actually, uh, an MD as well as a PhD. And he is a particular interest is in, uh, skeletal muscle. And, uh, I guess he just galvanized my interest in it. And then its application to athletic populations was, uh, sort of the, the start of my love affair, uh, with, with the tissue itself. Mm. So, for somebody who's not a bodybuilder, maybe they're not an athlete. Why is muscle mass so important? I think this is, um, I think that's a little bit overlooked. Yeah. I, I mean, I think as a tissue, um, you know, most people appreciate its role, obviously primarily in, in locomotion. So disorders of muscle that manifest in, you know, the inability to be able to move around uh, clearly everybody recognizes how important it is, but the roles that we preach for skeletal muscle extend beyond that. And, you know, so if you are able-bodied and have active skeletal muscle mass, then it's the biggest contributor to our resting metabolic rate. So it's really when you boil down the energy we expend in a given day, it's from skeletal muscle, mostly by virtue of its mass. And um, it's also a significant site of glucose uptake. So it controls blood glucose or blood sugar. And it's also a significant um, oxidation site for blood lipids as well. So it's a very metabolically active organ, although most people just recognize its role, obviously, in locomotion. But we think it plays an important role in metabolism 
and a lot of other issues, particularly uh, with aging as well. Mm. Yeah, I spent many, many years measuring people's metabolism using a metabolic cart and can <laughs> definitely, definitely vouch for that. The more muscle mass you have, the more calories you're burning. Can you maybe yep. elaborate on why that's so important for most people to understand? Yeah, I, like I, I think, you know, for active people, it's maybe a little less apparent that, that if you put a box around yourself and you measured the energy that you expended in a given day, um, most people, the biggest single contributor to their, to their energy expenditure is what we refer to as your resting energy expenditure. And that's a really the energy that you would need to just sustain, you know, daily life and, uh, your skeletal muscle, particularly if you're active is a, is a substantial contributor to that. Obviously, the more active you are, you're adding what we call activity uh, expenditure. But um, for most people, you know, when we talk about, quote unquote, basal metabolic rate or resting metabolic rate, that's largely a function of two tissues. Muscle is the big one, uh, mostly, again, I said, by virtue of its mass and liver as well, only because it's, you know, very highly metabolically active. Mm. So, okay. That's very well explained. And a lot of people that I would see working out at the gym would be really thrilled when they would jump onto a treadmill and they would run, 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 and they would burn 500 calories and feel really proud that they got a good workout in. And you know, it was a good workout and that's fine. But what I would try to explain to them is I don't really care whether you come in and burn 500 calories on the treadmill. What if I can just teach you to burn 500 calories every single day more than you currently do just being you like, isn't that more important? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the analogy you're using and the one that I, when I convey these principles to the students I teach is to say is that, um, you know, the calorie burn on the treadmill is like coming into the room and turning up the thermostat, you know, five degrees for X number of however many minutes you're on the treadmill and then turning it back down. Whereas, you know, resistance exercises, weightlifting, if you can improve the it's almost like the size of the furnace. And then there's a little bit of what's called, uh, you know, excess post-exercise oxygen consumption or EPOC, a lot of people shorten it to. Um, that, that is actually uh, turned up a little bit more with resistance training. And you, so, so it's as if you've nudged the, the thermostat up about a, you know, half a degree and you think, well, that's not such a big deal, but it's nudged up half a degree for, you know, 24 hours for, probably three or four days after you've done a workout. So that's a significant burn. That's uh, more of a chronic rather than an acute uh, calorie burn. Wow. Yeah. I just think of all the chronic, like over exercisers who do way too much cardio for what they think they need and they're cold and they're hungry and they just aren't burning any calories and can't lose weight, can't lose fat. Just, you know, thinking about food all the time. It's just, it's such a a difficult thing to get past. You mentioned strength training. Is that the most valuable form of exercise in your opinion? Well, I, I mean, I, I think it would be fair to say, and uh, you have a good friend and colleague at McMaster University named uh, Dr. Martin Gabala, and he's uh, championed these sort of very short hit workouts. And, um, you know, between the two of us, we came up with a, a series that's actually a, a free series that people can take uh, online through Coursera um, called Hacking Exercise for Health. And in that, we we try and get the message across that uh, it's really the best of both worlds. So try and maintain your cardiorespiratory fitness by, you know, not necessarily doing hours and hours on the treadmill, but definitely by doing some high intensity work, um, but sustain your, your strength and your muscle mass by doing resistance training. So it's probably a balance of the two, uh, in the, uh, the series I'm painted as the guy who likes to do more resistance training, which is maybe true. Uh, and Dr. Cabal is the, uh, the hit training guy, but, uh, you know, the reality is it's, it's really a combination of both. It's probably going to get you, um, you know, in a good shape and uh, healthy for a long period of time. Mm, interesting. I like that. Is there any particular protocol you guys like to follow for your HIIT training in particular? Uh, so the one that uh, uh, Dr. Gaval has made popular is a, is a 10 by one. So basically one minute on, one minute off uh, for 10 intervals. And so it's about a 20 minute workout that involves a five minute warm up and then a five minute cool down. Um, but he's shortened that, uh, that time interval down now to, you know, literally, um, seconds. And we, we just, uh, have published a paper in patients undergoing cardiac rehabilitation in which we have them do stair climbing as their form of, of hit. 
So, you know, four flights of stairs. And I think everybody knows if you you do that at a fairly safe, but yet uh, substantial pace, you can get your heart rate up pretty, uh, pretty high. Yeah, for sure. So it, it's all, it's all relative. And I, but I do think that um, it's these intense bursts of activity that are actually um, really going to do the, the benefit for your cardiorespiratory system. Mm, it just makes me more and more excited to return to the ice rink and uh, get back, get back <laughs> yeah. to playing hockey. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. And that's, you know, ice hockey is a, it's a great activity. Um, you know, it's just a series of basically repeated sprints, right? So, uh, and then you go sit down and recover and then you go, you know, so it's, um, that's exactly how it manifests itself. So maybe that's uh, Dr. Gabala's fascination with that. Although he and I would both admit we're both, uh, pretty terrible ice hockey players. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in the right place. So am I, <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. Um, let's go back to the strength training, which is again, your favorite thing to talk about. There's so many different variables, sets, reps, tempo, intensity, volume. What are, what are your top priorities when you're thinking about a strength training workout and program design? What are the things that should be focused on the most and what things tend to be more like just noise? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think my answer is probably one of those things, you know, people have often said, you know, what's the thing in your career that has changed the most? And so, you know, in, in a, it almost seems like another lifetime. Not so long ago, I can't remember. Uh, I did a lot of, um, you know, training with mostly with teams more than a, but a few individual athletes and talk to them about program design and what to manipulate. And, um, you know, cycling and periodization of things and trying to get people to goal weights and goal strengths, you know, et cetera. And um, then I sort of began to um, relax a little bit on some of the guidelines and said to people, you know what, I want you to go in, you can follow this plan, but what I want to try and make sure is that you're, you know, you're basically giving it a good effort. And so effort is the, you know, perceived product of, whatever it is that you're doing. So you can have a high degree of effort with lighter weights, but lifting them at close to fatigue or heavier weights, again, doing the same thing. And it's really goal dependent. So if you want to get strong, uh, you know, you need to lift heavy weights. There's no question about that. But if it's just general sort of strength and conditioning and you want to keep yourself in shape, then there's no need to, at least in my opinion, go heavy all the time. Um, so we do a prescriptive uh, message for a lot of people. We, I, I direct a center of um, people who come in from the local community and, uh, you know, the average age of which is almost 70 and they're cardiac rehab patients, they're seniors, uh, there are people who are cancer patients, uh, people with multiple sclerosis and even people with spinal cord injuries. And we have, um, you know, Borg color charts all over the place where, you know, 10 out of 10 is a red. Uh, nine out of 10 is an orange, uh, eight out of 10 is a yellow and so on and so forth. And we try and say, you know what, try and end up in the, in the orange zone. We don't, we don't need you to be redlining it the whole time because these guys aren't, uh, world-class athletes, but try and try and, ex you know, have a good, uh, expenditure of effort, if that's the right way to put it in, um, what we find is that that gets, that gets a lot of the job done. And that's not to say that there aren't prescriptive approaches that are very um, variable focused. And I think a lot of those things would dictate, you know, responses in a lot of people. Um, I got to the point with, uh, with the athletes I was talking to where I found everything seemed to work. And then all of a sudden nothing seemed to work. And so then we would change something mm. and that seemed to work for a little bit of time and then nothing worked. And, you know, so to me, it was, uh, it was just changing the stimulus that actually sort of budged the needle um, but the, you know, the net effect was if they went in and consistently worked with a plan and, and had a high degree of effort, then they, they generally got good results. Um, you know, the variable none of us can control, but I like to say it anyway, is that you got to pick your mom and dad wisely. So make sure you've got good genes <laughs> and, um, and then everything sort of tends to fall in place from there. Interesting. So effort being like the number one thing, like it needs to be challenging to you to send that signal to your body to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Is that correct? Yeah. I, and I think that, you know, a, a little bit of my stance on that is sort of, you know, softened when I begin to talk to athletes, and, you know, for whom I, I think that there does need to be some degree of programming, but for 
quote unquote mere mortals and for, you know, with, with our cancer patients, for example, some days a high degree of effort, you know, might be a three out of 10 compared to the previous day, depending on what phase of their treatment they're in, what their fatigue level is like. So it's all relative. And, um, you know, I, I think we generally just like to get people to the gym consistently is the one variable that I think really matters. And then having a, a good plan and working out relatively hard while you're there. After that, um, th there's some fine nuancing of the details, but uh, I think for most people, um, that's probably not as big a concern. So I don't like to oversimplify it, but at the same time, I don't like to overcomplicate uh, what I think can be very complex, as you said, sets, reps, time under tension, free weights, machine weights, and everything. And it, it, it's, I think for a lot of people, that's quite daunting. Yeah, I agree. I think it's fun to think about those things, but that's not the overall point or purpose of that workout. You've already mentioned aging, and I know you're an expert in this topic. I remember, I think it was my very first personal training certification, learning that once you're past like a certain age, you really can't add muscle. And I've learned through my career that that's not true. I've trained 70-year-olds who absolutely could add muscle. And I'm curious to hear what you've learned through your career, even if it's just anecdote or studies that you've done, you know, is there a certain age that you really can't add muscle or is that just not true? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you said I'm an expert in aging and as I age, of course, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I've been, uh, I, I kind of chuckle when, uh, with people and I say, you know what, the research becomes me search, right? I'm, I'm more that. concerned about wh what's important for me. Uh, but I would say, uh, yeah, as uh, like the first sort of, I would say half to two thirds of my career was spent really looking at what happens in young people. And then as time has gone on and, and assuming the the directorship of the center that, uh, that I have, it's made me more interested in what it takes for somebody to, you know, quote unquote, successfully age and, um, definitely exercise in, and physical activity is a huge part of that. So, you know, from, from my perspective and not just our work, but surveying the rest of the literature around there, you're entirely correct. I don't think there's an age where, gaining muscle is uh, impossible. I think it does begin to slow down. And I would sort of say maybe into your 80s, um, you it's not necessarily adding muscle. You can definitely make somebody stronger and more um, physically mobile, but I'm not sure that it's a function of gaining mass. And so I think that it, probably there are some people that can gain in their 80s and maybe even a little bit later in their life. But most people are even the most ardent bodybuilders. And, you know, there's a few around the Internet. I like to shout out uh, Clar Clarence Bass. If you've never come across his website, that man is a, a true testimony to what it means to be physically active as you get older. Hmm. Um, and before him, guys like Jack Lane. Um, but, you know, age is going to get you. You can't. There's nothing yet that will stop the clock or a few people think they can slow it down. I just happen to think being physically active and yeah, definitely trying to hang on to as much muscle mass. But to your point, Casey, I think that people in their 70s um, with the right consistency of practice and probably a few dietary tweaks can easily gain muscle, no problem. Mm. I'm so glad that you mentioned that, the difference between strength and mass, because I think so often, again, we think about muscle almost like a bodybuilder where mass, not a lot of people want a lot of muscle mass. They don't want to look like that, especially as they age, but like hearing stories of a 95 year old Greek grandmother walking up and down stairs, carrying pots of soup with ease is something that I think all of us are interested in. Like all of us want that, that kind of function as we age. And I just, I don't think a lot of people think about muscle and strength in that way. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're trying for, right? It's, it's that function as you age and the ability to continue doing the movements that make you happy. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think that you hit, hit the nail right on the head and it's really about um, maintaining what we call activities of daily living. And so, you know, people say, Hey, what's, what's the best lift? What's the most functional lift? I say, sit down in a chair and, and, and if you can rise out of it, then you know what, that's an important lift because as soon as you can't do that, you're in full-time institutionalized care. You can't get on or off the toilet, you know, et cetera. So um, it, it's really about being able to do the things that are able to, you know, give you pleasure and uh, keep you mobile into later life, keep you living independently. And those are all the things that, you know, the, the boxes that people as they age uh, check 
as saying, this is what I consider to be part of successful aging. So, um, you know, you've probably read, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of what are called blue zones around the world, these places. They tend to be blue because they're by the sea. Um, but the people don't do exercise there, but they tend to live close to something where if you look at the, you know, the, the place rises out of the sea and there's always a hill. And so I, I just imagine these old people walking up and down the hill all the time. And I think, well, that's how they get their exercise. So to your point about, uh, you know, the 98 year old Greek uh, grandmother that's carting stuff up and down a hill, I, she's, she's been doing hit workouts her entire life probably. Wow. Yeah, I've never considered the hill portion of the blue zones. That's super interesting and a really, yeah. really good point. Wow, that's way interesting. Yeah, I think most people as they age, they just want to play with their grandkids. They want to have a good time. A lot of those blue zones are very social and you know have community and so much importance there. But yeah, if you can't walk to the place where you can be social with other people, you're going to be missing out on what makes life so awesome. <laughs> That's yeah, I, I agree. And it's really important. You said you mentioned, you know, the community and that's the other piece that I'm beginning to appreciate. And, you know, the, the pandemic has sort of opened that up to, you know, the importance of uh, connecting with older people and making sure that they have somebody that they can talk to. And, you know, the degree of what's called social isolation has really been, uh, I think, a tough thing for uh, older people to manage. And it does highlight that, uh, you need to have a community of friends and people uh, that care about you and take care of you and pick you up when you're down. And uh, whether that's, you know, your church, your faith or something else. Um, yeah, it's, it's a huge part of it. And those blue zones all have that as well as uh, physical activity and they tend to eat fairly well as well. So that's right. Yeah. That's such a great point. I'm glad you brought up the pandemic and yes, it has been a very, very tough time. I, I think back a year ago, I was working, at a gym and now I'm not. And I would have told you a year ago that if you don't have access to machines and equipment and all this stuff that you couldn't, you, you wouldn't be very good at like maintaining muscle mass. And this year has kind of forced us out and made us be a little bit more creative. And I I'm curious to hear like your experience in, in during the pandemic, what, what equipment do you feel like is needed for somebody who wants to maintain and maybe even build muscle mass? Do they need access to a gym or can they, can they do it without? Yeah, yeah it's a good question. A, a lot of people, there was a lot of activity on um, social media when the pandemic sort of first forced a series of, uh, of lockdowns and gyms closed and access to them became really difficult. And, you know, for me too, it wasn't just, uh, you know, I, 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 I do have a gym quote unquote. Uh, I mean, it's basically, it's my lab at the university, but the, the rules were basically, if you don't have to go in, don't go in. So, so I didn't. And, um, so we turned our, our basement here into uh, a, a quote unquote gym. Um, it's probably got enough weight, uh, to keep me busy and busy enough. It's probably not as heavy as maybe some people might like, but I think between that and doing just body weight work, um, you, know, you can find a ton of workouts, uh, that again, if you, you, you take them up to the right level of effort, um, can help you if, if not necessarily gain, but sustain, um, your strength and, and your muscle. I don't think, uh, you know, and again, uh, I'll, I'll be able to check when we're allowed back to the research facility, but I don't think that the, I've lost any muscle and I certainly haven't lost any strength. I know that. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's possible. Uh, and I think you have to be a little bit diligent about it, but it, it certainly doesn't require specialized equipment for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. We found the same thing. We did exactly the same thing. We ended up finishing our basement into our gym and we have, you know, we've got a barbell and a hex bar and a few weights, but you know, even just with some resistance bands or a TRX or suspension training, whatever, like you, you really can, get at least adjacent to that, that kind of feeling of really pushing yourself and achieving that effort with what, what I would have considered a year ago, insufficient equipment. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I agree. I think it requires a little bit of um, creativity and it would be interesting to validate it, you know, getting back and finding something to validate with. But I, I agree. I don't think a lot of people necessarily needed to lose a lot of strength in that time and body weight can work really well. Let's, let's turn a little bit to nutrition. Tell me um, a little bit about your research in protein synthesis and how that came about as well. 
Yeah. So uh, again, coming all the way back to my master's degree and, and, and the work I did with Mark Tarnopolsky, uh, he and I worked on uh, using uh, isotope labeled amino acids. These were stable isotopes, so non-radioactive. But um, And I realized after, I, and then when I went to do my PhD, I worked a little bit more in lipid and carbohydrate metabolism and a little bit of uh, endurance type, type training um, that I really, for some reason, was captivated by by protein. Uh, there weren't as many people working in protein. It was a, it's a, still a relatively small field. And, um, you know, our interest has sort of grown from there. And then as the primary driver and substrate for skeletal muscle, uh, you know, it just fit in hand and glove. And so my interest grew. I did a postdoc down in Texas for almost four years with Bob Wolf. And, um, and then after that, it, um, I came back and the faculty position, uh, has allowed me to explore that deeper and deeper. So, it, you know, our interest in that is really around the intersection between exercise and protein or nutrition in general, but mostly protein in, and their role as independent variables to be able to increase muscle, you know, or, or maintain it, um, and we've tried to manipulate the system backwards and forwards and sideways to, to, to push that issue and understand what's going on. We've interviewed people who have focused more on the exercise. We've interviewed people who focus more on the nutrition. You seem to ride that line really well and understand that both are really important. Or is, is one more important than the other? Is exercise more important than nutrition and proper you know, protein intake or vice versa? Yeah, great question. Uh, I always answer that, and and I I bring up my, one of my favorite successful agers and an icon as well, Jack Lane. And a great quote of his is that uh, you know exercise is king, nutrition is queen, and you put them together, and you've got a kingdom. So I do think that um, I do think that uh, exercise you know sort of sits a little bit higher in the hierarchy. I think it's difficult without exercise to out nutrition. Uh, chronic disease and inactivity, um, but it, it, you know it's possible with exercise and attention to it alone. If, however, you neglect uh, nutrition completely and you just you know you don't eat well, and uh, then your exercise gains and everything that you're going to make are going to be minimized. At the same time, um, you know if you eat well and you're relatively physically active, you're gonna you're gonna be okay. I just think everything gets a lot better when you have the two of them together. But but I sort of give the upper hand to to exercise. I'm fond of saying that exercise is the forgiver of many sins, and you know whether that's high blood pressure or heart disease or whatever you have, um, you, your risks and uh, and everything else tend to be lower if you're more physically active. Diet wise, it's a little bit more difficult to pinpoint. You know, what it is you should be doing. There's some general sort of broad stroke guidelines. Uh, I try and stay out of the diet wars, to be honest with you. I think that there's a lot of ways to eat and stay healthy, but there's not a lot of ways to be uh, the same if you're physically inactive. So uh, be be active is my, is my message. <laughs> well, we're continuously disappointed with all of you experts on nutrition. We just want somebody to give us the exact answer of what everybody should do for nutrition. And nobody seems to be able to do it. And so we're left with uh, <laughs> seemingly no exact answers. The principles are yeah. so important, though. Um, how yeah. How do you think of, you know, protein intake, what's a good recommendation that should be made for most people without really getting into the energy side of things, like you said? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the current recommended dietary allowance with the RDA sits at 0.8 grams of protein per kilo body weight uh, per, per day. So uh, that's about 0.3 grams per pound. Um, so, you know, in our opinion, that's that's too low. Uh, we We consider that to be a real minimal intake and people would do better uh, to consume protein at probably twice that level. So around 1.6 uh, grams of protein per kilo or, or somewhere around uh, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5 uh, grams per pound. Now, if you're looking to add muscle mass, if you're a you know, physically active individual, uh, if you're grinding out four or five workouts a week, then you could go up to, I would say, the sort of one gram per pound or 2.2 grams per kilo, and uh, you'd be fine. Um, 
your body can digest a lot more of that. And I'm often asked about the, you know, the per meal dose, which our lab is sort of quote unquote famous for saying is only about 20 grams. Um, although we were, that's a little bit misinterpreted. Uh, you can, you can eat way more protein than that, and you can digest way more protein than that. What you can't do is your body can't use it. So, you know, it's not like fat or carbohydrate where you, you just store it away and then, you know, break it down for later. Uh, you don't have a little bag of protein in your body anywhere. You have to use it during the time when you eat it. Um, or it's not used. You pull the nitrogen off, you make urea, and uh, you, you burn the rest of what's what's left. And so, you know, we're fond of saying is that 2.2 or 1.6, whatever it is, somewhere in that range, uh, grams of protein per kilo is the upper limit of really not what your body can digest and handle, but certainly what it can use. So you can you can eat. You know, people have uh, two, three, four times more than that. You're just not getting anything back. So it's a, a series of diminishing returns. Interesting. Okay. So there's a few things I want to unpack there. The first is such an important point that you made the RDA, the recommended, you know, amount of something that is not necessarily the amount that's going to be optimal for you. That's like the minimum. Is that correct? Yeah. That, yeah. And I, and I, I think it's a semantic issue that, uh, you know, sort of grates against me, which is it says first, first word is recommended. And I don't think it should be. Uh, and then the last word is allowance. And, you know, we all got an allowance and that's all you were allowed to have. Uh, so uh, I think if people called it the, the MDI or the minimal dietary intake, I would be happy and we could all live and nobody would really, uh, you know, really gripe too much about it. But uh, to say it's recommended and that's all you're allowed, I think, is the incorrect part. And, and yeah, it's, it's a minimal intake in my, in my estimation. Huh, interesting. And then you also mentioned you're finding that 20 grams per meal is about right. There's a little bit of debate to that. I would have thought that number would have been like 30 to 40 grams. Can you comment a little bit about that? Yeah, that's, you know, so all of this has come out of uh, acute studies where we've measured muscle protein synthesis as the outcome and as the primary driver then of, of muscular growth. So uh, we would freely acknowledge is that we haven't measured breakdown in those studies. And so we don't have the other side of the equation. And it's the net difference, obviously, between those two processes that is important. It, it probably is uh, close to 30 grams. Um, we saw no difference between 20 to 40 grams. So doubling the dose got us about an extra 11% in the response. And that's the, the hallmark of something that's pretty much saturated. Wow, that's um, it. Yeah, it, and, and but I think I think the interesting point is we realized even in that paper that if we divided the dose out by you know kilos of, of body weight, that um, you know some guys who were bigger clearly needed something more, and you know people who were smaller clearly needed something less. So we you know we've pushed this around an awful lot, and we've sort of come to the conclusion that if if one point six is the daily intake limit. If that's three meals per day, then that's a protein intake on a per meal basis of 0.5 grams of protein per kilo per meal. So that's three meals a day. Or if it's four meals, it's about 0.4 grams per kilo um, per meal. So, uh, you know, those are the doses that we've sort of settled on that we think are getting most of the job done. And when I, when I say most people say, well, is that like 60 or 70? I'm like, no, it's more like 90, 95%. There might be a little bit of extra you can squeeze out of the cloth at the end, but you know, it's, it's pretty trivial in our opinion. Wow. That's super interesting. We, we get this question all the time. I'm sure you get this all the time too. Can you get too much? What is too much protein? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh well, that's been a loaded question for it's my 23rd year at McMaster. And, uh, I, I, if I had a nickel for every time I get asked that, <laughs> yeah, so it's all good. You know, I, I, so here's the public service announcement. The two big things that people say are happen as a consequence of eating too much protein. The first is it makes your blood acidic and that causes calcium to leach from your bones. And, and that's untrue. So a series of meta-analyses, uh, one sponsored by the National Osteoporosis Foundation, found that basically as long as calcium is sufficient and vitamin D is dialed in, so by calcium being sufficient, I'm generally, you know, around a thousand milligrams per day, uh, vitamin D, we can all have a 
big argument about that, but let's just say um, that it's, you know, 800 international units or 1,000 international units per day. If you've got those in line, protein is actually a bone-supportive nutrient. Like 40% of your bone's mass is protein. And, and, I, and I think a lot of people go, what, really? And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's collagen. And um, so your, your bone is not just a stick of chalk. Like it's not just, you know, calcium carbonate. Um, and so, you know, we can lay that one to rest. The, the next one and the one that sort of really, you know, people have been taught for so long now um, is the protein causes, and I underscore that word, your kidneys to fail. Uh, it's about a 50, almost 60-year-old hypothesis. A guy named Brenner put it out. It's that, uh, you know, protein results in urea production. Urea causes your kidneys to have to work harder and filter the urea, which is the main excretion product of protein. And then over time, the functional units of your kidney, as a result of all this work, begin to shut down. And um, the bottom line, and all I can say on this is that when you look for the evidence that this exists in human beings, it, you end up with a complete void of anything that shows that it's the case. So, wow. uh, you know, we've done what's called a systematic review of meta-analysis, which is basically looking for all of the studies out there and doing, um, you know, what what people in the end call evidence-based medicine to try and look for the answer and, and it returned nothing. So wow. people on higher versus lower protein diets have the same kidney function. There's then there's no change in, in kidney function that would make you think, oh, my kidney function is declining on a high protein diet. Now, I'll say this. Um, the observation that a lot of healthcare workers, you know, MDs, dietitians, uh, lots of different clinicians make is that people who have kidney failure are on put on low protein diets to preserve their kidney function. And that's a truism, like, and, and it prolongs survival in most people. But that doesn't mean, and it's circular logic to then say that protein caused their kidney decline. Mm. And that's so we, we need to make that distinction and we need to get people out of the headspace to say is that because of this, one caused the other. And, and that's, you know, that that's just flawed circular reasoning. So um, you know, a lot of people say, what about people with chronic kidney disease? And I think the recommendations there going, you know, closer to the RDA are, are probably, um, you know, correct. Uh, it does prolong survival, does uh, keep your kidneys healthier. Again, stunningly enough, or not, maybe, um, you get those people to be physically active and particularly to engage in resistance training. They do a hell of a lot better. And um you know, so that's what I like to say is that if there's a potent anabolic stimulus, maybe we could forget about protein for those people and focus on the exercise. So, wow, that's such a great point. Yeah. I, how often do we do that in nutrition science? We see cholesterol at the scene of the crime and blame it for heart disease or something like that. When that's not quite been proven, we're, we're chasing the wrong thing and, you know, misinterpreting causation and correlation. Um, you also mentioned other uses of protein and yeah, I think other, I, most people would be quite surprised to learn that 40% of your bones are protein. We use protein for lots of different things, not just muscle mass. And you know, when people yeah. think of, you know, autophagy and fasting and things like that, they think they're going to waste away and waste muscle, but there's, there's protein coming from lots of different places, including skin, including bone. Like there's, there's lots of different uses for protein. It's just so important. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, every, I think, you know, organ and structure in our body, what gives it substance and what it's made of uh, is protein. And, you know, so if you don't get sufficient protein, then you're not only putting your muscle at risk, but if you're in a, particularly if you're in a weight loss situation, you could put your bone at risk as well. So, you know, I think it's important to, to bear in mind um, how the substrate is used. There, there are upper limits beyond which I would say, you know what, it's just a waste of your time to, to try and consume protein to believe that it's going to, you know, give you some benefit. But I've met some athletes who say, well, if I'm going to choose a macronutrient to quote unquote over consume, then protein's not a bad choice. And I, and I have a hard time disagreeing with that yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it, you know, as a, I'll, I'll say I, I eat a lot less carbohydrate now than I did when I was younger because I, I did a lot more. Um, but I'm, I'm not zero carb or, or by any means, I don't think low carb. I still enjoy bread, rice, pasta, but, um, a lot less of it. 
Mm. Interesting. So that's another thing that a lot of people say, do you need carbohydrate to build muscle? Yeah, and that's a good one. Um, I think, you know, if you look at the overall diet, uh, you know, there's definitely carbohydrate in my diet. And I think in most athletes diets, there's no question about that, but you know, do you need it? In other words, is if you went on, you know, zero carbohydrate, but you had protein and fat in there, then, then my answer would be no, you don't, you don't need it because, um, insulin, which a lot of people say, oh, it stimulates protein synthesis. And I say, oh, well, clearly you've been reading, you know, introductory biochem textbook. It does in, in tissues like your liver and, and, and uh, other, you know, splanchnic tissues, your intestines, uh, for example, but it doesn't in muscle. So you'll need a small amount of insulin. And if you jack it up even higher, um, it, you know, it doesn't do anything to protein synthesis. It does inhibit a little bit of protein breakdown, but I don't think that's a big deal. So do you need them? Uh, the, the short answer is no. Mm, I love that. So what about the difference in the source? So if I have a plant source, is that equal to an animal source or is there a difference there? Yeah. Uh, good question. Um, pushed around for a lot of years. Uh, my answer on it is it changed. I'll, I'll be honest in that. Like, I don't think there's any question. The fundamental truism is, is that animal source proteins are, are higher quality than plant source proteins. So, and by quality, we mean, you know, they, they're more easily digested. Their digestibility is higher. Um, and their amino acid profile of all of the 20 amino acids and particularly the nine essentials that we need uh, tends to be better. So, you know, dairy proteins, egg proteins, meat proteins are hyper quality than plant-based proteins. Uh, the difference comes is when you have a lot of these plant protein isolates that you can get now. So soy is the probably been around for the longest, but now you can get rice, you can get pea, you can get hemp, et cetera. And they've had a lot of the uh, so-called anti-nutritional or undigestible things taken out and you're really now then if it's boiled down to, you know, what amino acids did this thing have and certain blends of these, these vegetable proteins are actually pretty good. In fact, we, we just published a study in collaboration with a Brazilian group, uh, about a week and a half ago showing that, you know, beyond about 1.6 grams of protein per kilo per day, uh, in some vegan, uh, weightlifters versus omnivorous weightlifters, everybody gains about the same amount of muscle. And so the, mm. the source and the quality of the protein actually matters. As long as you eat enough of it, um, it, it, it doesn't matter at all. So, you know, the message in, with, with plant-based diets is really, that's fine, but you've just got to eat more. And, you know, um, in eating more, that means probably eating more calories. And, you know, so for some people, it's not a viable option. Um, but, uh, for young, healthy, active people, not, not a big deal in my opinion. Wow. That's super interesting. I've not heard that. That's really cool research. I'll have to look up that study and we'll definitely link it in the show notes. What about the, the function of, of supplementation? Do you find supplementation to be helpful or should we be focusing on protein from food sources? Yeah. So my first question, athletes ask me this and, or, you know, a lot of the kids at the, you know, varsity athletes at the university. And my first question back is always, how much money do you have in your pocket? And they look at me <laughs> and I said, well, you know, if you've got $2 in your pocket, you can go buy yourself uh, you know, 500 milliliter, you know, carton of milk, and you're going to get a good dose of protein. You're going to get some hydration and uh, you're going to get some calcium and a little bit of vitamin D you know, your body needs all those things, but if you have $20 in your pocket, then by all means, you know, the supplement might give you, you know, a better dose of protein, not as many calories, but might not give you all the other things as well. So the foundation I say to athletes needs to be, I think has to be food first. And, you know, I don't think anybody can live on, or at least I couldn't live on supplements alone, but, um, you know, having said that, uh, what supplements do provide is, is a level of convenience. And so, you know, if you're in a pinch in a situation where you can't get access to food, you're not particularly good at prepping food. Uh, you're going to be, you know, you can't, um, for whatever reason, uh, eat the food that somebody's made, then a supplement isn't a bad choice. It just tends to be, uh, a little bit more expensive. So, um, financial considerations aside, if you're playing on a pro team and the, the supplement table is there and 
you know, you don't have to pay for anything, then uh, by all means, uh, go for it. But uh, I don't think there's too many athletes, at least that I've talked to, that uh, don't appreciate and value food as part of their training regime. And I think that that's where we try and build from. Supplements are, are useful and can be uh, with respect to timing and convenience for the most part, in my opinion. Mm, yeah, I, that's so well explained. I, I tend to agree. I think supplements are just that. They're, they should be a supplement. If there's a use for them, then you can supplement with them, but that doesn't mean they can replace anything. What about the role of supplements like BCAAs or creatine? Which, which are your favorite to kind of leverage for better results? Yeah, so I think uh, branch chains on the whole are are probably one of the most overhyped supplements that are out there. I, I, like it contains the one amino acid that I do like to talk about, and that's leucine. It's one of the three branch chains, and it's clearly the amino acid that if you don't have enough of it in in the protein that you're consuming, it, it, your muscle is going to struggle. Um, it, it's the amino acid we found that kind of turns everything on, flicks the light switch, then everything goes from there. But the other two branch chains really aren't needed in, in great abundance. So, you know, from my standpoint, uh, I like to talk about leucine content as opposed to the three branch chains. Um, and I know that that tends to rile a lot of people up, uh, but, but that's that's my opinion anyway. <laughs> um, fat burners, uh, the only other ones that I think take the cake in, in, in front of um, branch chains as, uh, as being probably too, too overhyped. From the standpoint of, of creatine, it stood the test of time. Lots of evidence to show that it's uh, beneficial from a muscle standpoint, accumulating evidence and um, protection against traumatic brain injury, um, even associations between creatine intake and various cognitive function and cognitive decline. So I think we're beginning to scratch the surface on creatine and, and understanding what it can do for people. Um, and so... I, I think that that one gets a, gets a thumbs up. Um, and then outside of that, you know, protein powders to me are, are, are convenient. Uh, I, I like to use them when I'm, you know, away from the kitchen for the most part, but, um, it's not my, my everyday thing. I I'll definitely admit that. Wow. That's so interesting. You said equal parts creatine has stood the test of time, but we're also just scratching the surface of what it can do. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I think that the, the muscle data begins, you know, it, it's just solid. The foundation is there. I, I don't think there's any question that it's, it's ergogenic. It enhances mus muscular performance, particularly repeated sprint stuff. It does, it, it, it augments muscle mass gains with resistance training, no question. Um, but the brain stuff and a lot of the other functions as well, I think we're, we're now beginning to understand. And so that's a, that's going to be an interesting area of research for the next, uh, I think, probably five or 10 years for sure. Wow. That's so cool. You've also done a lot of research on protein timing and I think everybody knows, I mean, I used to wear a personal training uniform that would say on the back, like you have a window of time that you need to go down to the cafe and, and buy a protein shake or basically your entire workout is invalidated. Like what's the importance yeah. of protein timing, especially after a strength training workout? Yeah, I, I, that's a, uh, it, it, I know it's, there's one of the, uh, so catch me 20 years ago when I first, you know, stepped in front of undergrad students and started teaching them. And I used to talk about protein timing and the importance of it and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I think what we're beginning to realize is that, you know, and I, and I do say this and it's true is that right after a workout, your muscle is kind of like a sponge. It's ready to soak up nutrients. It's ready to, you know, repair itself, regenerate and everything. Um, I think that it's true that, you know, that's a great time if you want to put carbohydrates back into the system to get glycogen resynthesis. Um, but I don't think that it's as, as applicable to protein. Uh, the, the window, the quote unquote anabolic window uh, for protein is open for a really long time. Uh, I've got friends um, who I think have coined the expression, it's not a window, it's more like a, you know, a barn door or a garage door or whatever you want to call it. And, and it's open for a long time. So you know, if you don't get your protein in the immediate minutes after you work, you're, you're going to be okay. In fact, you know, probably even up to a day later is, um, you're still anabolically sensitive to that, uh, to that protein. So, um, you know, you don't have to carry the shaker in the gym, although <laughs> many young, many young men do. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, 
I, I don't think that that's, that's anything that's necessary. Well, that's good news. I've had many of those shaker bottles blow up in my gym bag. And <laughs> <laughs> chocolate protein. Yeah, being there, being there, did that. Yeah, yeah. And then, thought, and then you know, later on, somebody goes, it's not that big a deal. You're like, oh, thank goodness. Thank yeah. goodness. <laughs> I'll yeah. just blend this when I get home. It's totally fine. Um, exactly. I've come across something that I would love to hear you dive into, which is the unfortunate law of Phillips. I think this is really great and very interesting. Can you elaborate a little bit on the unfortunate law of Phillips? Well, I don't know if it's if, if it's my law or, or anything, but you know. So, so the the I have two. The first is is that the anecdote surrounding a particular nutritional practice or or exercise practice is directly proportional in terms of the influence it has to the athlete that gives it. So, you know, Tom Brady is, I don't think anybody can, can argue anymore. The greatest of all time in terms of a quarterback. Agreed. When Tom Brady talked about, you know, avoidance of nightshade vegetables and drinking water to prevent sunburn, you just got to glaze over. But, but a lot of people were like, what works for Tom? And so, you know, that's a prime example. And I hate to pick on Tom Brady because the man is, uh, is, is clearly, you know, even at the ripe old age of what is he 43 now? Yeah, I mean, like that's it's, crazy. It's insane, you know? <laughs> so, but, you know, as I've said, I'm fond of saying on social media, Tom, just shut up and drop back in the pocket and pass. And, and we can all, <laughs> we can all look back in awe. Um, the only other law that I like to say is, uh, you know, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Uh, and if it's, if it is too good to be true, then it's probably banned. And, uh, and there are, <laughs> there are a few exceptions to the rule. And a lot of people say, what about creatine? I said, you know, creatine is, uh, it does, it gives you a little edge, but it gives you an edge. That's what it gives you. It's not going to turn, um, you know, to, to borrow a friend of mine, uh, Trent Stellinger's phrase, it doesn't turn a nag into a thoroughbred. So uh, it can turn a nag into a faster nag or a thoroughbred into a faster thoroughbred. But, you know, you're never going to move um, a guy like me with very mediocre physiology up into the, uh, the NHL or some professional league just by giving me creatine. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. I think so much of this, the way I explain it to people is it's it's not necessarily easy, but it is simple. Like it's it's kind of like just a few steps, like you need to stimulate your muscle, you need to push yourself to, you know, what you call like a really hard effort or, or, you know, adjacent to failure, then you need to eat an adequate amount of protein and then you need to rest and let your body adapt. And that's fairly simple. And there's lots of variables in that, but that process can be very simple. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy or require no effort, but if you just repeat those things, you should be able to maintain your muscle and have a good, healthy and functional life and have a really long and healthy life. Is that correct? Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on Casey. Like I, you know, I think that there, and there are a lot of people out there who I have great respect for in the, in, in the world of sort of personal training and, you know, social media influence and, and the ones that stand the test of time and longevity understand that it's consistent practice of what you're just talking about, that is really the winner in the end. So I spend a, a quite a bit of time now talking to, you know, I have three boys, three sons, the youngest of which is 16. And talking to them and their friends about, you know, because, you know, they're beginning to appreciate that dad actually might know a little bit about this. So they, so they do listen to me. <laughs> At 16, wow. Say, I know, I know. It's wearing off, though. The, the older two, they're doing their own thing. So, um, the, uh, the, you know, the question is always, you know, what about this stuff? What about that stuff? And I'm like, you know what, guys? Like, how often do you go to the gym? Well, you know, yeah, once, like twice. And I'm like, so is it once or is it twice or you know, when you go there, are you, are you lifting weights or, or are you talking to the, you know, your friends over in the corner? And, and, and those are all the things that I think, you know, kids are beginning to figure out. And the sooner they figure those things out, the only other thing that I think is beginning to uh, come to the forefront is a huge effector of not only health, but performance and for sure is, uh, is sleep. And, and that's something that, you know, I, I don't do any work in, but I've been fascinated by the interaction between, you know, reduced sleep time and then how that tends to really curb a lot of people's potential gains and health benefits from dietary practice to uh, exercise as well. So I think that that's one of the, 
probably in the next 10 years, we're going to see a lot of new information about just, you know, which scares me because I'm, I'm a notoriously crappy sleeper. So uh, <laughs> I, I need to improve my, uh, I understand the correct phrase is sleep hygiene. Uh, so I need to do better. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I mean, so many people are, you know, going to the gym and getting gassed and, you know, lifting really heavy, which is great. And they're eating adequate protein. But then if you're staying up until 1130 watching, you know, Shit's Creek on Netflix or something without you yeah. know, blue light glasses or, you know, the right settings in your bedroom and you're getting crappy sleep, like that's your, t- that's your body's time to repair everything. It's not yep. when you're going to the gym. The gym is for creating and- the response. You hit the nail on the head. I think it's just, you know, it's the natural uh, recovery window. We, we we all need to practice it. And it's not just obviously physical recovery, but a lot of uh, mental processes and, and metabolism as well. Um, you know, it tends to get messed up if you don't have adequate sleep. So, uh, yeah, good sleep, uh, good exercise, good nutrition, uh, good social network. And, and, and you know, you, you pretty much got it all lined up. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And and all of that said, that doesn't mean I'm not going to be alongside with you watching Shit's Creek at 1130. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Netflix is going to happen. Enough. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been an amazing conversation. I I personally have learned a lot. I I did a bunch of research and I've I followed your work for a long time, but I I've got a lot of really great takeaways from this conversation. What is one simple thing that that you would want a listener to take away from this conversation that they could apply in their life and see benefit? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it comes back to being physically active. It, like I said, it's, it's the forgiver of a lot of sins. Uh, it, it really helped. I mean, we're, you know, 10, 20 years ago, if you'd asked me the link between physical activity and mental health, I wouldn't have been able to give you an answer. But again, like talking about scratching the surface, I think that we, we, we now know that, First, your brain is is a lot like um, other tissues as plastic. It changes in response to certain stimuli, and exercise is one of them. And the area of the brain that changes is the is the area that gives rise to new neurons. And so, you know, these are things that, you know, I just think that it's almost embarrassing to talk about exercise, how good it is for you. So, be as physically active as you can. Fit in exercise where possible. Choose something that you like to do. Um, and don't focus on the scale as much as a lot of people want to say, and just focus on the benefit that, you know, that the exercise is giving to your body aside from that. And, uh, hopefully things will fall in place for you. That's great. That's such great advice. I'm thinking of books like spark or go wild, where they talk about, you know, we think of the brain as remembering facts or information, and we've created computers that can beat us in chess, but we will Mm -hmm. never create a robot or computer that can reach out and articulate a chess piece and move it to where it needs to be with the grace and ease that we can. And things like walking into a room and opening a door are incredibly complex, you know, movements that require huge amounts of the brain's capacity. And I think it's just so overlooked that exercise factor, as far as our mental health and growth, I think that's just so far overlooked. So I'm so glad you, you mentioned that. That's great. So where would you like people to go to find your awesome work? Uh, so I, I, I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter as Prof. That's M A C K I N P R O F. Uh, it's the same handle on Instagram. I don't spend as much time on Instagram. Uh, I'm told by my sons I, I'm too old to spend time on TikTok, and I don't understand it anyway. Uh, I'm also on I'm on Facebook as uh, SMP PhD, so uh, you you can look me up on all of those, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. I'm easy to find if you do a search. That's great. Yeah, I was just talking, we were talking to Amy Berger, who is going through the process of trying to learn how to use um, Instagram. And I I can totally empathize. Trying to learn how to use Instagram past a certain age is not easy. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm getting a little better with Instagram, but uh, I, I did try a little bit of TikTok and it was uh, it just blew me away. I, I completely <laughs> skipped over Snapchat. So um, yeah, it's my kids who tell me you know how to do things. So I, I'm one of the parents now that I swore I would never be when my dad would ask me, how do I get my VCR to stop flashing 12? And uh, I showed him how. Now, if I want my phone programmed, I give it to my son and say, show me how, will you? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. That's great. 
Professor Stuart Phillips, this has been an amazing conversation and one I've looked forward to for a very long time. We're so grateful for you and for your research and your work. And we're so grateful that you took the time to be with us today here on our show. So thank you very, very much. We really appreciate you. You're, you're most welcome, Casey. It's a pleasure being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been an absolute honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.